And I just want to know, John Hendry, what kind of socks are you wearing today? They're boring and white. Oh, man. I don't know if you guys know, but John Hendren has the best socks collection in, the, in Richmond for sure. <laughs> is it the worst thing about Zoom is we don't know what socks each other Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Today, we are introducing the new SY20 project by Merck and discussing the topic of our first rapid response research study focused on digital equity and distance learning in the time of COVID. With us virtually today are representatives from the VCU School of Education and Merck School Divisions to talk about how this topic resonates with their work. Let me introduce everyone to you now. Uh, we have John Becker, who's an Associate Professor of Educational Leadership in the School of Education at VCU. We have John Hindren, who's the Director of Innovation and Strategy for Goochland County Public Schools. We have Alma Kinnup, uh, who's an English teacher at Cuyacuson Middle School in Henrico County Public Schools. Peter Martin, who's the Director of Operational Technology for Goochland County Public Schools. We have Jesse Seneschal, who's the Director of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium. Uh, we have Alyssa Yazinski, who's a math teacher at Monacan High School in Chesterfield County Public Schools. And then my name is David Naff, and I'm the Assistant Director of Research and Evaluation for Merck and the host of this podcast. Um, all right, so jumping in here, first, I want to hear from everybody just talk about what the last couple of months have been like for you and your work. This is John Hendren from uh, Goochland. And I think it's, it's just rethinking about the way you approach just about everything when it comes to your job. Um, we are so used to an education of doing things a certain way, having uh, structures that we're used to that we depend upon to get our jobs done. And this, this came around pretty quickly. I don't think we were well prepared, at least mentally, for this. And so it's just been rethinking about how to approach problems. And uh, I think the, the best advice I've, I've acquired myself and have shared with others is to uh, take a deep breath, think it through, and realize that we're not on a speeding train. We can take our time with some of the things. And uh, I think that's been helpful in just sort of thinking things through and realizing there's not just one way to get the job done. Well, I'm, I'm coming from a household um, where my wife is upstairs in a virtual meeting right now. <laughs> my daughter's home from college doing a class online. Her roommate, who's uh, from Homer, Alaska, is living with us for the foreseeable future. So she's at the other side of the table. So luckily, I have enough bandwidth to get through this. But I've been fortunate um, to be able to go into the office a few days a week because we still have... Uh, students and staff who are having computer problems and breaking things and dropping things. So we've, we've had to, had to adjust on the fly to, to get their needs met and to, to figure out best ways to, to deal with these sorts of things. I mean, we left on a Friday, we thought we'd have a Monday to come back and tie up some loose ends and that blew away over the weekend. And it's been by the seat of our pants ever since. This is Alma, and for me, it's been interesting in that I've taken 
I'm taking the perspective of both a mom and an educator. And from the mom side, I was having a discussion with a colleague today and I was like, yeah, I'm at the, I think the end of the spectrum of encouraging my son to do his work. He's four, so he just wants to socialize and jump around and be silly. So we started this whole virtual learning with loving encouragement. And then at some point we crossed the threshold into bribery, like, come on, dude, I'll give you a juice and a gummy pack. And right now we're at, I don't want to say threatening, but I think that's what it is. I'm like, don't you want to be in kindergarten with the other kids? I don't know. You might be in preschool if you don't do your work. So that's where we are. So from the mom's side, that's been my perspective. And then from the educator standpoint, it's really given me an opportunity to actually put into practice those sound bites that I'm always feeding to my kids. Like it's not working, pivot, problem solve. So there's been a lot of pivoting and a lot of problem solving in terms of navigating virtual learning with my students. That's been mildly stressful. One of the things that worries me on a daily basis is how they're doing. Anytime that I digest the news now, one of the things that I think about first is how is this impacting my students? Are they okay? So it's been, in addition to the normal stresses of being an educator, it's added a new level of depth to some worries. Mm. Other than that, it's definitely been interesting to take on this challenge. This is John Becker from VCU. And for me, in, in some ways, it's been uh, different. In some ways, it's been the same. Uh, you know, I've been teaching online for nearly a decade. So this transition to remote teaching has been fairly seamless for me. Uh, we also, we have two kids, one of whom has been homeschooled for the last few years. So uh, I feel like we have sort of a leg up in, in that area of what it's like to have a child at home learning from home. So in those ways, it hasn't been different. Um, but I, I, I feel like the way that it has been different is in just sort of the the levels of anxiety that exist all around us. Uh, I have a colleague at VCU who once used the term idling and uncertainty. This idea that we're kind of, you know, trying to be comfortable sitting around while everything is so uncertain. I think that uncertainty um, creates just a lot of anxiety that make, makes it really difficult to do uh, some, some things that we regularly do. I mean, just reading and writing are hard to do because it's hard to focus because there is so much anxiety around us. So to me, that's, that's the biggest difference that I'm experiencing right now. Alyssa, how about you? At school, there's a lot of nonverbal communication that happens in the classroom, in the hallways. Um, that kind of makes us a, a family that kind of reassures students from down the hall that, you know, I'm here for them and I can't, be, I can't do that for them now. Um, so as Alma said, that kind of uh, has in the back of my head what's going on in their world um, and what can I do to, to help that. I'm usually a, a helper and a fixer for a lot of the students, even students that are not in my class or in my classroom at the time. And I can't really connect with the students that are not um, on my class roles at the moment. So that's one of the biggest changes for me is only talking to the students that I am uh, designated to teach at the time um, and not talking to the other adults and the other faculty um, that we're, we're all a team. We all work together for the good of the students in the building and not having that professional learning community in my space is a little bit different. Um, I am married to a special education teacher 
and to see the daily changes from his perspective is very interesting when I didn't have that insight before. I'm used to dealing with the students that are in my classroom and to hear what he has to go through and now what I have to then do with my special education students um, is a different point of view from a SPED point of view. And, um, and, that, and that's one of the other things. I'm usually prepared to teach the content and the connection is an afterthought only because we have that communication, we have that vibe, um, we have that rapport with the students. And this different platform, if it's, if it's not something that's comfortable for a lot of the students, uh, they don't connect the same way, we can't have the same type of conversation. So I think that kind of anxiety is at the forefront for me. The content is still there. Um, if we don't connect relationally with um, how, like the platform is presenting that content. They don't uh, absorb the information that I'm presenting to them. I think one of the other things is the disparities in, like you said, the, the, the access to, um, to Wi-Fi, the access to devices, the access to just other you know, needs that they have, whether it's food, whether it's safety, um, is a concern for me and my students at the moment and I'm just doing everything that that I can right now. Right. Yeah, it seems like there's no level of preparation that could no. really have made any of us ready for for what this transition has been like. And I know people were talking about pivoting and sort of adapting mm -hmm. on the fly to to things and in Merck we've been thinking similarly because one of our foundational principles is about relevance and we want to make sure we're doing work that's relevant to the needs mm -hmm. of divisions. Um, and on that note, Jesse, can you talk more about what is the SY20 project? What's its purpose? Um, and what is our approach going to be with this project? I think in its simplest terms, the project is our attempt to help in this time of crisis and specifically help the public schools that are part of the Merck region, you know, by thinking about what are our, our assets, what are the what's the capacity we have, what are the resources we have as being affiliated with the School of Ed and also the broad networks we have across the um, educational community in Central Virginia and how might we leverage that to offer support. Um, and there's, there's been like a, a really big surge of, of uh, people stepping up to help out in that regard. When it gets to the issue of approach, um, it's a little bit more complicated. And, and this is really has made me think a lot about this question of relevance and impact of research. Um, you know, one of the things that I think COVID has um, really shown us all across a number of areas is that there are all sorts of inequities and disparities and gaps that exist. And it's really sh uh, shown a bright light on that, whether it's health disparities or economic disparities or food access disparities. And of course, in education, one of the things we see is um, the gaps with um, digital access, which is you know, the, the topic that we'll kind of tackle to some extent today. But one of the other things that I've been thinking about is the way that um, COVID has really shined light on the gaps that exist between research policy and practice, which has always been there. There's always been sort of like this delay and kind of, you know, um, those communities have never really talked to each other. And a lot of that, his cultural stuff um, in terms of like what university culture is like versus school district culture. But um, the thing that's really kind of uh, clear now is the timeline issue where research is really delayed in terms of its ability to answer questions that are relevant to, to districts. And I think, um, you know, Merck has done some work in that area, kind of really think, rethinking our projects for using, you know, using our study teams and getting multiple perspectives at the table. But really what we needed to do is also speed up our timeline significantly because there is so much uncertainty in the current context. Um, I was feeling when we got into this uh, early that 
you know, I, I wanted to, you know, think about how we could pose questions to help gather information that would be useful. But I was also in this realization, like the questions that we pose in the middle of April might be very different by middle of May. And if we were, you know, even if we did a really quick research project that ended up putting out a report, you know, by uh, September, which is a, a really rapid research project, we might have just lost the conversation at that point. We might just be way behind the curve. And so that led us to really think about this project as being a rapid project that is iterative in its design. And when I say that, what I mean is that we're posing some initial questions that were initiated by the Policy and Planning Council, our leadership, our governing board. Um, the superintendents and regional school leaders. We've also gotten input from our, our school partners um, across our teams and trying to get input through a survey that we put out through our um, website and stakeholder email. And then what we're trying to do on a regular basis is, is pay attention to those voices, um, consider the context, like how are schools changing? Um, how are they responding? Uh, like uh, John said, all the systems are disrupted. Everything is upside down right now. So what are all the different ways that the districts are responding and how how might we use that as like that perspective as a needs assessment to try to direct our research activity? Where are the, the most critical needs in terms of information where we could really help out? And then also looking at who's around the table, because we have, when I sent out an email to the VCU faculty and graduate students, we had, um, you know, over 20 people respond, you know, about 10 faculty members and about 10 grad students, and they all bring so much um, you know, sort of content expertise, research scholarship expertise, but also practical expertise that is really, I think, going to lead to um, a lot of good work happening through this project. And just to give you a sense of like what our, some of our first steps are, um, one thing we're doing is we're, uh, we're constructing a crosswalk. And the crosswalk is looking at the seven different Merck school districts and trying to um, see across many policy areas how they're kind of responding, like what are they doing in terms of instruction, how are they handling grades, what are they doing with special education or English learners or um, school administration or teacher evaluation? There's all these things that need to be considered and kind of looking at how dis different dis districts are responding. Part of that information is coming from public documents, websites, um, you know, emails or Twitter feeds that kind of give regular updates. Um, but we're also going to do targeted interviews with districts in order to um, help get some firsthand perspective on that as well. And then the, the other big kind of uh, piece that we're doing is we're launching a website. That website should be up in the next week or two, and it's going to have information from a research perspective, you know, initially on this question of uh, digital equity. What does what research tell us about uh, the digital divide and strategies for addressing it? And then we we'll also have a practice page. What are some examples of best practices going on now, and what can we learn from them, and how might they give us a vision of where we, as we move forward, where we're going? And then also just our resources page where we'll be uh, linking to sorts of practical resources for, for uh, a, a variety of educational stakeholders. And why are we calling this the SY20 project? Great, SY20. And this, so this was, uh, this was uh, I had a, a really awkward name for it. And I, I put a little note in the Google Doc. I was like, David, is there a better name for this? And he put, he put forward the idea of SY20. Because SY20, the school year that is 20, is always going to be remembered. It's always going to be something that we think back about where, where public education as we know it has, uh, was disrupted. And I think um, I'm of the feeling, and I think probably a lot of people are coming to this idea that I don't think public schools are going to be the same after this. I think it's going to really transform public education in a meaningful way for, for years to come. It's going to be one of those moments. And so this is our chance to, to be in that moment and to, to reflect on that moment and to, I think, I mean, my, one of my really goals with this is to, um, 
to be part of the change. If, if this is going to cha- transform public education, how can we be a positive force in that? How can we help school, public schools emerge better on the other side? Yeah. And based on feedback from our um, school divisions, our first topic uh, that's going to be a part of this SY20 project is around digital equity and distance learning in the time of COVID-19. John, can you give us a definition of digital equity and give us an overview about what the research says about this? So about 100 years ago, or 2003, one of those, I I wrote a dissertation. And in that dissertation, I I tried to operationalize this very term of digital equity in education. And uh, in doing that, I, I argued that there are there are at least two dimensions that we need to consider, uh, access to technology and also uses of technology, right? So there's uh, access and use. Those are kind of two big dimensions to consider here. From there, I I added in some other ideas from other scholars and this idea that equity implies justice and justice requires that people are treated alike or differently according to their likenesses and differences. Uh, What are variables that are relevant to justice? Well, we might think about things like choice, ability, virtue, etc. So if there, for example, if there are differences in access to technology, if those differences exist because, you know, say one school division has has made a choice uh, to invest in technology, another division has made an informed choice not to, that may be um, an inequality, but not necessarily an inequity. But if we start to see those differences exist uh, by race, by sex, geography, SES, those sort of things, then we're, we're sort of falling into this world of, of digital inequity. To sort of put that all together, I, I wrote that digital equity in education is a statistical condition whereby access to and use of technology is randomly distributed according to educationally irrelevant variables like sex, race, socioeconomic status, and geography, and predictably distributed according to educationally relevant variables, things like choice and ability. In other words, if there, if there are differences or there are inequalities in computer access or computer use, those differences should not arise from variables that are irrelevant to educational justice. That's where I was um, in 2003, and I think it, it still holds up. But I just want to add that you know, now, in, in 2020, and I would say particularly during a, a global pandemic, we see additional kind of sub-dimensions to this. So access, we talk about access a lot. Uh, I think it was Alyssa mentioned you know, access to computers and access to to reliable internet access, uh, those are definitely issues to think about. But there's also this issue of access to a sufficient computer, right? One that's sufficiently powered to do the work that needs to be done. Uh, And also, as as Peter mentioned, you know, one that's not being used by someone else in the household. So think of a family with, um, you know, maybe one or two parents who have to do work from home. They need a computer. And there's two or three kids at home. They all need computers to do their work. Uh, So just, you know, in the past, just having access to one computer was, was sufficient. Uh, now we have this, this new dimension of everyone having access. And, you know, we can't just say that kids have access to Wi-Fi because, you know, their public library is available to them. You know, it's not unless you're sitting in the parking lot these days. Um, and then there's issues of access with respect to accessibility for those uh, students with special needs. I won't get into that because I think there'll be a separate podcast about that. But, but those are sort of some newer sub-dimensions. And then I would say that the differences in use that already existed are now magnified. So there's some new sub-dimensions there, right? So we've long had uh, variance in technological literacy within schools, or we might say between teachers, right? This is the, the kind of the pockets of innovation 
problem that we've long had in education. Um, so we're now seeing vast differences in the way teachers are able to adapt to uh, this new world of, of remote instruction, which not only requires technological literacy, which we know varies between teachers, but, but also I would say a new set of skills and dispositions that, um, that translate from the, the classroom to distance education. I think that's kind of what Alyssa was talking about. You might be sort of the most technologically proficient teacher out there, but if you don't have the experience of engaging students from a distance through a screen, uh, it's different. It's kind of a qualitatively different experience. And so um, that's sort of a, a, a new sub-dimension to this uh, technology use um, variable with respect to digital equity. When we talk about digital equity in education, we're talking about a lot of things along a lot of different dimensions. And it's, I think, part of what's been sort of overwhelming about this from a research standpoint is that all these things that you just mentioned, John, everything came up at the same time as we've been reacting to COVID and all the disruptions to public education. Like, where do you really start? Because so much of it is about access to internet and devices, but special education is also top of mind. English language learners is also top of mind. There's so many ways that this sort of resonates with different populations that we work with. And I'm curious about how this looks um, in each of our school divisions. So, John, starting with you, talk about how you think about digital equity in your school division in Goochland and how has this come to the forefront during COVID? Yeah, we have had a belief for a while that once we saw Henrico go one-to-one -one back in 2001, that um, every student deserved to have a device to help them learn, to uh, act as a bicycle for the mind. Um, then an economic downturn happened. Uh, Peter and I got started in 2013 with a one-to-one -one program at our elementary school. Um, we have three schools uh, that are elementary. We have one middle school and high school. So for the for the guests on the show from Chesterfield and Henrico, we're relatively small. Um, and today we have a one-to-one -one program, uh, K through 12. And on our last day together with students, every third grader through high schooler went home with a device. Um, and so when we talk about digital equity, the school division has made the financial commitment to make sure, to ensure that students have access to a high quality device. What we have less control over is what they have when they get home in terms of access to the internet. And I've been around for a while. I was one of the kids um, in first grade that uh, was exposed to a computer uh, because of Seymour Papert and logo was, was pushed in our schools. And of course there was no internet. And I'm, all, I'm always arguing all the incredible things you can do with technology that don't require the internet. But the reality is uh, the internet definitely uh, is something we all depend upon today. So five years ago, we partnered with the Gutenberg Education Foundation to supply grant money to um, purchase Kajit smart spot devices. These are like a Verizon uh, MiFi device, but the internet is filtered. And so we work through a program each year to provide those devices to um, families who are economically challenged. Um, and that helps level some of the playing field. However, we also are in Goochland, Virginia, and every area of our county is not um, ensconced in uh, high bandwidth connectivity. So even if you could pay for it, doesn't mean you can get it. And so those are still challenges that we're 
uh, rapidly trying to address right now uh, through some innovative uh, solutions, but it's slow to come. You can order more hotspot devices, but it doesn't mean that they're available. Just like you order masks, the masks aren't available. So we're dealing with those challenges. But the thing I would add to that is just supplying internet and supplying devices is part of digital equity for me is also supplying what kids need. And I'll give you an example. I had a, t a teacher who's uh, works with our gifted students uh, in elementary school. And this year they were working on a sixth grade math curriculum. And those students had finished that curriculum um, two weeks ago and were ready for seventh grade math. And it's that ability to, we had to reach out to the company, do some behind the scenes things, but basically we're able to provide those students who have access, who have their devices at home to start the seventh grade material. So we were, to, we were able to provide them because we have digital tools with the curriculum materials that they needed right away. Uh, another example is all of a sudden we had some students at home who uh, were part of our ESOL program, English is for um, English language learners. They all of a sudden were stuck with trying to wade through paper materials without any support of their teacher. And so we were able to push out apps for them on their iPads to scan the, the uh, printed material and have some of it translated to Spanish for them where that was appropriate. And so for me, as we talk about digital equity, it's, it's being able to provide to sometimes personalize, but really the word here is to individualize for kids uh, because that's what they need. Uh, and I still think we have some work to do, as uh, John Becker mentioned, and how to use the technology. Our teachers have been trained, by and large, they're all excellent proponents of how to use the technology when they're facing kids. But this move to being online, uh, it shows that we have a lot more to do. Uh, it shows that we need to be reflective of what we're doing and what's working for families because there's not one solution that's working for every family and every student. One of the things that was mentioned that is playing over and over is the idea of technological literacy. In Henrico, as was mentioned, we do have a one-to-one -one ratio in secondary. So I know that they have their devices at home. Another thing that I was mulling over as Jesse had mentioned was the idea that our situation right now is going to fundamentally change how we carry on going forward. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I was thinking about in that is another thing that was mentioned earlier, which was the idea of relationships. I think that is something that needs to be emphasized, especially because when you have that social capital, it's great to be able to use that during these kinds of situations. And if you haven't established relationships with your community, meaning your students, their families, uh, this is where you're, this is when you're struggling. So considering that and then technological literacy is something that I'm thinking about. At the end of quarter two, a couple of teachers and I had met informally and we talked about, okay, where are our students' deficits in terms of their technological literacy? How are we going to prepare our next group of sixth graders as they're coming up from fifth grade, where some of them have regular access to devices because they have them available at home and some of them don't. How are we going to bridge that gap? That's something that hasn't been addressed since I've worked with the county. And so what happens is we hand students these devices 
and we just assume that they'll figure out how to use them or that some other teacher will instruct them on how to navigate all of the different applications and the different tools that they have at their disposal. Yes, they have this device that connects them to the wider world. However, if they have no manual, if they have no instruction in being able to use this tool, it's really something that's hindering their ability to process whatever it is that they're supposed to be learning. So one of the things that I've been keeping in mind as I've been assigning different tasks to them is we use Schoology is how can I design this so that they don't have to leave this platform? Because what inevitably occurs in some teacher's instruction is like, make sure you go to this link and this link. And then it's a party of hyperlinks and students get so overwhelmed. I've seen it in the classroom and I consider that this is occurring at home and they don't have anybody to look over their shoulder and say, oh, here, this is where we are. And I can only imagine how frustrating it is. So that's what I've been processing. The idea that we need to rethink how we're handing over these devices and the instruction, the support that we're providing them and those community connections, both of those play hand in hand in being able to navigate through a situation like this. One of the things that I've been thinking about is a lot of parents have been comfortable reaching out to me because I've initiated those relationships from the beginning of the school year. And I'm considering how that might play out differently if I hadn't made myself available to them by calling them or emailing them and updating them on their child's education. Alyssa, how about with you in Chesterfield? Um, it sounds very similar. Uh, we have Chromebooks for our secondary students. I think it's uh, fifth grade and above. Um, but that requires they pay a small fee. And some of our students still don't have that small fee, especially when there are multiple school-age students in the home. So that's one of the main concerns that we have, um, just getting the technology that is available to them into their homes. I know that there are Wi-Fi, someone mentioned Wi-Fi being at um, libraries, but transportation to get to those libraries is an issue transportation to make sure that the Chromebooks can be fixed or they can pick up a new charger. Um, those are issues as well that kind of um, make it inequitable in terms of access to just getting onto Canvas, which is our learning management system, to get the information that the teachers have put up there for them. And then John mentioned before about teachers um, not really knowing how to use those learning management systems that we have, the different level of um, instruction they're getting online, even if they have that access to the technology, um, is a concern. And in terms of knowing what the kids need, I think is another thing that makes it uh, difficult to get those devices and those services to the students. Um, like Alba mentioned, there are parents who will call and say what they need or mention uh, services that their, their students can make use of at home, but then there are kids who are disengaged in the classroom, there are parents that are disengaged at home, and unfortunately, those parents who are disengaged are not speaking up and saying the things that they need for their kids. There are phone numbers that are not working, emails that have gone out that people are not responding to, where we do ask, what can we do? How can we provide those services for you? And unfortunately, we don't always get those responses. So in, in terms of it being equitable, Chesterfield has, has put it out there and has provided those opportunities. 
Um, but unfortunately, it might not be reaching everyone due to one of those, those issues. Right. Now, Alyssa, what would you say is maybe the, the biggest barrier that you encounter in trying to provide equitable access? The biggest one, I think, would be the reporting of what's needed. For from a teacher perspective, you know, when I walk into a classroom, I can see this student doesn't have a Chromebook. Uh, the students can ask me for chargers. I can tell when kids are un, uh, are disengaged or um, not really doing their work, and I kind of nag them. You know, that warm demander. You know, you got to get this done. But right now, I can't do that. Even students, when you put it out there for them to join the the classroom environment that we've created, if they don't choose to do that from their side, there's not much we can do other than knocking on their door and, and turning on the Chromebook for the students. So I think them self-reporting their needs is, is one of the biggest things. I think the other thing is they, the transportation piece, the, the financial and the transportation kind of go hand in hand for the students that I have. If they don't have the money to pay the fee for the Chromebook, if they don't have the money for the Wi-Fi access, if they don't have the money to provide transportation to get to the locations for either of those things, they just don't have that at home. So the money and the transportation. I know that at Monacan, luckily, we only have, um, for the students that don't have those devices at home and don't have the access to the internet, we do provide paper packets. And I've been, kind of, I've been talking to a few principals about how many of those are actually going out. And I know at Monacan, last week we did about 50, which is maybe around 3% of our population. But I know some of the other students in the lower socioeconomic areas, one of them sent out 500 last week, and that's about a third. And then there's a middle school in the area that's mostly um, disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged and minority students. And that middle school, which is supposed to have Chromebooks, sent out 95% um, paper packets to their students. So one of the questions would be, are they are they requesting these packets just to have the backup? Is that because they need it, because they don't have the connectivity, that access to the technology? Is it because their Chromebooks are broken? We just don't know why these students are not engaged digitally um, to be able to fix those problems. So that's, that's another one of those issues. Mm -hmm. Alma, how about you? What do you think is the, the biggest barrier that your students encounter? I think the idea that they have some stock in their education before, as an English teacher, one of the things that I continuously did was gave them an ability to voice their experiences so that they could relate to the content. And it's a little bit more difficult now. And for those shy students, it was easy for me to take them aside and whisper and just do those verbal checks so that I knew that, yes, they understand the content or I can support them this way. Now those shy students are completely silent. There's no way for me to get to them. So that's definitely been an obstacle. I've messaged them at this point, all of my students, I'm doing second rounds now, private messages in Schoology like, hey, I'm just doing a virtual check-in. How's everything going? Do you have any questions for me? Can I support you? And then I'd share something personal like waiting for my marigolds to bloom, mm -hmm. something to kind of break the ice so it's not so much me as a, an administrator looking over them, but hey, I'm a human, I'm here to help you, let me know what you need or if I can help provide something to you. Some of them, the majority of my students responded, some of them did not. And so 
that's concerning is being able to reach out to those students. So an issue is also checking in to their contact information and realizing some of them don't have emails or phone numbers listed, so I can't reach them that way as well. So it's just making sure that they're all okay, that they're accessing content, and that they have basic needs met. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really reinforces the role that a teacher plays in being able to routinely engage with students in person. uh, Peter, how about in in Goochland, what seems like most prominent barriers for, for your division? Well, you can pretty much draw a line down the middle of Goochland County to get an idea what the digital divide is. Uh, Right around past our high school is where the wired world pretty much ends and doesn't pick up again until Fluvanna County. So in a lot of those areas kind of map with the socioeconomic disparities that talked about earlier. One of the things I've been trying to do is over the years at Goochland is trying to get better access for Western Goochland. Mm. This is in some ways, this might be a good thing that it's underscored the issue and the federal level, they're paying more attention to it and we might see something from it hopefully, but we've uh, surveyed our students and parents over the years and we've consistently gotten between a 20 and 30% who don't have access to what they call adequate internet. And, you know, the definitions of that are vary by family. If you have three kids watching Netflix, your needs are going to be different than like my mother working out of her apartment. That being said, uh, some of the companies have stepped up, some of the providers uh, during this time. Xfinity's opened up their public Wi-Fi network, which helps a great deal in Eastern Goochland. Um, Verizon, T-Mobile, Sprint, uh, AT&T have all upped their data caps, which has also been beneficial. I worry about what's going to happen when that ends and how that ends, because it's going to be abrupt and it's going to be sooner than we want. Those are the things I worry about. We've been working with, with some of the providers or we're trying to get in those areas that are underserved. I have a call after this with, with uh, one of the carriers to get one of those, um, basically a w- Wi-Fi tower on wheels, similar to what they set up after a hurricane, which it's kind of crazy. It's 2020 and we didn't have a hurricane, but this is where we are. Hopefully there'll be some benefit to all this when it's all said and done. We've done this before as a country with a rural electrification and rural telephone service. We have to see see this for what it is. It's, it's a utility and you have to start treating it as such. Right. The digital divide impacts rural and urban communities alike. And one thing that we don't have particularly represented on this first episode is the area of concentrated um, population, urban areas, higher poverty school systems is something that we're going to be speaking about in future episodes when we we speak with some of our colleagues from uh, Petersburg and Richmond Public Schools. But in rural areas, it's such a prominent need to just because of the geographic distance and actually physically being able to get to people and provide the kind of infrastructure that they need. And in terms of next steps with this, I'm wondering for everybody, what are we hoping to learn through this project about digital equity and distance learning in the time of COVID? For for me, I believe that, as Peter mentioned, there might be some good that comes out of this. And one of the good things for me is that it gives a voice to folks who this is impacting the most. I I feel there is a portion of our population that doesn't have a voice many times, and this amplifies the need to level the playing field so everybody has access. So then we can worry about doing those other aspects such as personalizing and individualizing for what kids need, especially if we can't be there uh, in front of them uh, or with them side by side. And and I'd also echo that I I hope it 
improves the communication that, that goes on. Uh, we've been pretty vigilant in our community of trying to reach out to families. We have uh, office hours set up for teachers to be able to connect with, with kids, but you know, every, every child does not always appear online. And there, there are reasons for that. They may not need help that day, and that's, that's fine. But we're worried about those that we've, we haven't seen at all. And connecting to families has been difficult. And just simple stuff like you could say, well, you can pick up the phone. Yeah, some of the phone numbers that we've called, the phones don't work anymore. So we don't have accurate data. And then second, we've got folks who are worried about giving, you know, their personal phones. It's, you know, it's not, you're not calling from school, you're calling from your, from your home and people have concerns about that and how to scramble to do that. So those, those are some of the things I hope that come out of this is how to underscore the importance of communication with families and then secondarily uh, giving a voice to folks on what their needs truly are. I have a thought. It's been a really good conversation. It's made me think about a lot of things. And I think, um, you know, I'm hoping that we figure out or move, move forward with the access issue. But I'm also really interested in the use issue that John brought up earlier, like how are we really using technology? Like I was always kind of ambivalent about technology prior to COVID. I thought that there were some advantages to it, but I also saw that it was often not well used within schools and was a distraction to teaching and learning in certain cases. On the other hand, I saw that, you know, a lot of examples of teachers doing it well and it really improving the quality of teaching and learning. But one of the things I'm thinking about now is as we're moving to digital spaces and distance learning and we're further away from each other, I think the idea that computers and, you know, home-based instruction could be used for academic, um, the development of academic skills. I mean, I think there's a pretty good infrastructure and idea about how that looks. But there's another purpose for public education, which is the development of citizenry and this idea that we're, you know, um, that we need to engage with the world and the ideas in the world and with each other. And I think now is a time more than ever that we need good citizens, right? So how does that look? How do we, how do we promote um, community? How do we promote citizenship? How do we promote engagement with the, with the social and economic and political situation right now, which is really of critical importance? How do we do that through computers when we don't have those face-to-face relationships or they're, they're more, they're not as um, prevalent. And so um, we really want to think about, I think we're really going to have to see the digital space, not just as a, you know, a substitute for a textbook or for like a, a sort of like an online academic learning platform, but also for something much broader. Um, and there's a lot of work that needs to go in on that front, I think. So I'll I'll dovetail a little bit on what Jesse said, and I think we have, there's a a segment of society that I believe would like for this moment to trigger a change to education in ways that that I'm uncomfortable with. Uh, You know, they they say that, well, see, we, we can do it this way. You know, just given the right amount of time, we can create classrooms of, you know, 400 students with one teacher because it's done through a computer and it's all efficient that way. Um, But I would kind of highlight things that I think were said by Alyssa and Alma. And I was thinking as they were talking about this idea, not so much about the digital divide, but the digital as divide and sort of the the digital kind of creates this, this wall, this um, barrier that makes it really difficult to do the kind of things that we know teachers need to be doing with their kids and building relationships and and that's all possible right we know people meet their loved ones online right but and you can build relationships online but in the educational setting that's that's harder right i mean i think it was Alyssa was saying like the nonverbal cues that you get and the just kind of the the vibe you get from your students in the classroom and 
Um, it's really hard to, to do that, if not impossible to do that, in a computer-mediated situation. And so I, I while I, I hope that some people do realize that there are some affordances of technology that, that we should consider, but there are, there are just some things that, that need to be face-to-face. And I hope this uh, underscores that moving forward. I, I definitely agree with that. And one of the things we've been thinking about is what, what will August look like for us mm-hmm. uh, when the, the new school year starts? And will we be together? And how does a, uh, a first grade teacher start a relationship with a new class of students? So right now, while it is difficult to maintain the same type of relationship that you had face-to-face, how do you even start one that way? And so one of the ideas we've considered is maybe the, maybe the teachers don't change. Uh, if we can't be together, maybe you're still with the same teacher that you've had that personal relationship already until we can go back to being face-to-face. But uh, we're going to have to be very creative in ways to overcome that uh, technology as divide. I really resonate with the idea of emphasizing relationships, underscoring everything in consideration with digital access. I think it's important to realize that it's not as clinical as here's your device and you are good to go, but that digital access needs to be buttressed by some of the things that Jesse had mentioned, which was that idea of community and uh, citizenry that we need to provide ongoing, helpful support to not just our students, but to their parents, some of who might be digital natives and be tech savvy and some of who might need a lot more support. And I feel like we need to consider it not just a voluntary service, but our duty to make sure that they are well supported because when they are well supported, then they can engage on those platforms. And if we fail to uphold those relationships, then we have the problems that we're encountering now where we don't have a means to make sure that they are engaged if they don't have someone at home to help them. Since, as Alyssa had mentioned, we can't give those nonverbal cues digitally, we need to consider that the access piece needs to be, there needs to be a foundation below that. Relationships, relationships, relationships. Uh, I, I noticed um, a lot of the the colleagues that I have say that none of their students come online to talk to them, um, but those are also teachers that have not connected with their students before all of this happened. Um, so to try to do it now, it's just, it's so difficult and kids are worried about grades and colleges and going to the next level. And I think one of the things I would like to learn um, and I would like to stress for the rest of the, the teachers that I talk to that have those concerns is what Alma said, what John said about really connecting with the students in areas that are not content related. One of the other meetings we just had, um, the consensus is they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, and showing them how much you care is very difficult um, right now unless you continue to call and continue to, to email and continue to send those text messages out to, to the parents and let them know that you care about more than just Algebra 2. You care about more than just the SOL test. So mm-hmm. the citizenry piece and the, the fact that we are educational partners, this is a partnership with not only the teacher, the student, the parents, the administration, cafeteria workers that feed them, the counselors that help them out. Every, everyone together is working for these kids to be successful. And once the parents figure that out, and once we can communicate that to these families, 
I would see more of a connection digitally and on the computer versus face-to-face. So that's one of the things I would like to explore more of is how to really connect with kids and families in general from day one so that if this ever happens again, we're ready. Mm-hmm. We're ready to connect. Well, here's hoping we get to reconnect in person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jesse, what are our next steps with this project? Our next steps are to uh, launch this website, to get it up, to get this podcast out, to um, continue that crosswalk I talked about earlier, and to do these profiles of practice, and then to continue to come back to the table and ask what are the new questions that need to be answered. I think we're in this moment of, of deep reflection. I think everybody that works in education is thinking very deeply about schools right now, and I, I, I hope this project will help be a space where we can bring those questions and, and help come up with answers together and that we can do some collaborative research around this and, and hopefully help influence and influence the conversation to put some of these important ideas, some of these important things that we're talking about today into the into the center so they don't get lost because that, that would be, I know that's not where this group of folks wants to see public education go. So let's let's keep talking. Yeah, our schools are rapidly adapting and we'll continue to adapt with them. Um, So we're going to need to leave that there for now. But if you want to stay up to date about the SY20 project, check out the Merck website at merck.soe.vcu.edu slash projects. That's M-E-R-C dot S-O-E dot V-C-U slash projects. Along with this podcast episode, we've posted a quick overview of the research on digital equity, some profiles of innovative practices in the Merck region, and resources for educators, parents, and students about how to navigate distance learning in the time of COVID. Uh, We will continue to update the site with new research, profiles of innovative practices, podcast episodes, and resources for the foreseeable future. Our goal is to make this a clearinghouse of relevant information as we navigate our new reality together. And your contributions are critical to that effort. So please also share your recommendations through the site. Um, Thanks as always to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck. Our thanks today to John Becker, Jesse Seneschal, John Hindren, Peter Martin, Alma Kinnup, and Alyssa Yazinski for joining us and for sharing your perspectives on digital equity and distance learning in the time of COVID. Finally, thanks to you at home for listening. We hope that you and all who are important to you are well. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon.